Good evening, everyone. Good evening. Welcome to the uh, second of three public lectures given by Professor Paula Fredrickson of Boston University. Um, my name is Fred Appel. I'm senior editor for religion at Princeton University Press, a co-sponsor of these public lectures with the Princeton University Public Lectures Committee. And for those of you who were here last night for the first lecture, welcome back. And for those who are here for the first time, welcome. Um, we, um, we had a wonderful start last night, a very auspicious start. Uh, the beginning of the lectures, we, uh, we had a lot of atmospherics coming from the window um, as soon as uh, Professor Fredrickson began to set the stage um, uh, uh, for the lectures, late antiquity. Uh, the thunder began to roll and the lightning crashed and uh, it was really quite wonderful. Uh, and tonight we're going to be without that, so we'll have to generate our own atmospherics, I guess, but that shouldn't be a, a problem. Um, it's a little bit warm inside the room. We, I decided we turned the very loud fan off because we thought that would impede uh, you know, hearing and the lectures are being uh, recorded. So, um, but I trust everyone will be comfortable tonight. Um, Anyway, um, for those of you who um, were not here uh, last night, uh, this is a lecture in a specially endowed lecture series, uh, the Spencer Trask Lecture Series. Uh, let me just say a few words uh, about that series. Um, uh, the lecture series was founded in 1891 with an uh, endowment, a $10,000 gift from one Spencer Trask, a graduate of the class of 1866. The purpose of the lectures, to uh, select uh, lecturers uh, who will emphasize the importance of the humanities. And um, very many people have, um, distinguished people have lectured in the Spencer Trask lectures in years past, but I won't go through the roll call because Professor Fredrickson mentioned last night that she felt, she felt a bit nervous about it, so we won't mention T.S. Eliot and we won't mention Bertrand Russell or any of those people, not at all. Um, well, uh, it gives me great pleasure uh, to introduce tonight uh, the faculty member who will be introducing uh, Paula Fredrickson. Uh, she is one of our newest uh, faculty uh, members who has just joined the Department of Religion, Anne-Marie Leindijk. Unlike uh, John Gager, who introduced Professor Fredrickson last night, uh, I do need a piece of paper because I'm more on the other side as a, as a really as a, consider myself a student of Professor Fredrickson and her work. So it's a great honor for me to introduce um, her and for those of you who were here last night to introduce her again for this second evening uh, of the Spencer Trask Lectures. And uh, Professor Fredrickson is the Aurelio Professor of Scripture at Boston University, and she has um, held visiting lectureships, uh, for instance, or professorships, I should say, of course, uh, at, uh, for instance, the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, and currently she is also at Tel Aviv University in Israel. And we are very proud, of course, that um, such an established person that ranks for me definitely among those great other uh, Spencer Trask lectures, received her doctorate from the religion department here at Princeton University. She is uh, one of the foremost scholars, not in just one field, but actually in two fields, 
that of uh, early Christianity, uh, the first century, but she is just equally at home in the, at the end of the fourth century, beginning of the fifth century, with her work on especially Augustine, the great scholar. And that is uh, very um, impressive in itself already to have two fields where you can be um, a major scholar in. Um, her many groundbreaking um, articles and books contribute to the social and intellectual history of ancient Christianity in those two periods. Uh, she has written numerous books and received just as many book rewards, uh, I should say. Um, to mention two of my favorite books of hers, uh, From Jesus to Christ, The Origins of the New Testament Images of Jesus, uh, which won a Yale Press Governor's Award for Best Book, and her Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, uh, won the National Jewish Book Award. And I'm eagerly anticipating the appearance of her next book on Augustine and the Jews, which will appear shortly. Uh, indeed, we meet again on, tonight on drier grounds than uh, last night, and whether those floods signaled uh, uh, of, uh, you know, some sort of purification flood or a, uh, an immersion, I don't know, maybe we'll find out uh, sometime in our lives. Um, but now after meeting at the temple and thinking about different sins for Jews and Gentiles, I am eager to continue the rest of our journey into uh, sin, the early history of an idea. And I'm happy to give the word to Professor Paula Fredrickson. I noticed that three people came in and they don't seem to have handouts. Do you have handouts? Does everyone have a handout? There'll be a brief quiz at the end of tonight's lecture and I want to make sure you have, okay. All right, thank you. Thank you for your, um, thank you for your remarks. All right. Yesterday, I tried to um, work with the idea of sin as it's presented in the Bible with, by which I mean the, specifically the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, as a type of wrongdoing that ruptures the relationship between the human being and God. There's a question of individual responsibility for this sort of wrongdoing, and also the, this concept of sin as this type of ethical and religious violation also implies things about how God is imagined as well. The issue about sin, because one of God's uh, jobs is being a judge in this, that tradition, the justice of the judge when the judge looks at the individual who has committed the sin, and the justice of the judge in terms of considerations of forgiveness. I'm always amazed when I'm working on my ancient people how this type of ethical consideration has come right around to us again in this period with the way, for example, the field of psychiatry is um, wrestling with the issues of how drugs can affect behavior and what the individual's responsibility is for certain type of behaviors if his mind, or I'm using ancient categories, soul, can be affected by or is affected by a deficiency or presence of certain chemicals. What is that person's accountability? How is he as a moral agent? When we put these questions against the second century wallpaper, which is what we'll be doing 
this evening, it becomes reconfigured. And the question also becomes a way of thinking about the structure of the universe. Not only the structure of the universe physically, by which I mean, again, the Ptolemaic universe with Earth in the middle, the moon, and then the planets above the moon, and then the fixed stars above the planets, so that the hierarchy of order recapitulates a hierarchy of value. The higher up you go, the better things are, both in terms of their, the, the points that antiquity valued as aspects of the divine, in terms of stability, luminosity, perfection, changelessness. Here in the realm below the moon, things change all the time. Things are radically unstable, but the further up you go in the heavens, the more perfect and stable things become. This biblical idea of sin is going to be interpreted in amazingly ingenious and creative ways by thinkers in late antiquity. And in the second century, we see how this happens in particular when thinkers who seem to be outside of any kind of Jewish tradition are thinking with Jewish myths and thinking with Greek paideia and thinking with the, the presumed scientific and religious architecture of the cosmos to understand the concept of sin, which has immediate purchase on the question of how you structure the idea of the human being and also how you structure the idea of God. In this period, there's a kind of resetting of the question. So the question becomes not only what do people do when they sin and what do they do about it once they have sinned, but to a philosophical type of question, why do people sin? And that will be addressed also in terms of thinking with the cosmic architecture. I would like to point out, since we talked about storms and flooding, very briefly, that God is um, a patient parent in a lot of the Jewish narratives. And after, um, has anybody read um, Jack Miles's book, God, a biography? There, it's a, if you want to read a psychoanalytic narrative study of God's character, that's, that's the book to go to. But there's, after God has absolutely blotted out all life on the planet except for Noah, his family, and the animals in the ark, and Noah assuages God when the flood is passed by doing a sacrifice which pleases God. Ancient gods are usually pleased by the odor of sacrifice. And then God says, well, you know, people are just like this. That's a loose translation of, of the Hebrew, which the RSV will render the the heart of man is uh, wayward from his youth, or something like that. It's just so people have a tendency to run off the rails. I better not use that as a reason to destroy all life again. And that's, in a sense, how the narrative handles the question of why are people like this? Because is the answer. We'll see that way of thinking about things reconfigured as um, the intellectuals get a hold of this question. In terms of the social rather than the cosmic setting, of tonight's uh, lectures. Again, we are going to find ourselves in the Western Jewish Greek-speaking diaspora, nicely described by um, a colleague as non-contiguous islands of Jewish settlements.
these communities in, who were at home for centuries in these Western uh, Greek cities were organized in a sense around ethnic reading houses. That's the way I'd like you to think about the idea of a synagogue, which need not be a structure, but could be very easily, but a community activity. The fact, if you look at your timeline, the second item again, after Alexander's conquest, you have the Jewish scriptures translated into Greek, gives us a social datum, how important that text was for community organization. It is not that these communities are literate. We can't presume literacy um, the way that we can often uh, presume literacy. Um, how can I say that when I've been teaching in universities for 30 years? I'm sorry. The, we often assume that people can read, but in antiquity, that's not necessarily the case. But these, can, these communities were a type of secondary literary community because they heard these texts read. So it's an oral type of literacy, and this is how these stories um, are transferred and communicated in these islands. These people are able to read about their ancestral traditions, which is another way of defining what we think of as religion. Religion is what you inherit in antiquity. It's your ancestral custom, whether you're a pagan um, or a Jew. So they, would re they could read and learn about the biblical image of sacrifices, but they did not actually sacrifice. And that is one of the big differences between the Western diaspora and what was available uh, in the land of Israel. In this period, again, what we'll find is evidence for non-Jewish readers of Jewish texts. Again, the evidence is elusive. It gets, it gets a little bit clearer as time goes on. And we don't really know how these texts circulated outside of synagogue communities. On the one hand, as late as the late 4th century, Jerome, than whom are few church fathers grouchier, Jerome used his local synagogue in Rome as a kind of lending library. He'd go and get a Jewish text, you know, borrow it, write horrible things about it, and then give it back to the rabbi or something. So there was this kind of back and forth. But the, what we think of as the Bible, you know, a book bound together in between covers of a codex, is actually a library in and of itself. And in antiquity, when these, uh, the technology of literacy requires scrolls before going to the codex form, the, the Bible is kind of a misnomer. It's a, it's a collection of scrolls. And somehow these begin circulating outside of a synagogue context. One of the ways they do this is through epitomes, which are kind of like cliff notes, um, and also through testimonia, simply sentences that have been excised and, and put in a list of um, gathered from, they're also called florilegia, like a bouquet of different quotations, so that that's one way of taking out aspects of a tradition and recontextualizing it. And this again shows the effect and the preferences of the Hellenistic schoolroom. Uh, Plato's 10 biggest ideas also circulated in this way, and this can also facilitate the way the Septuagint was recontextualized and reinterpreted in this second century period. 
The traditions about Jesus that are preserved in the quote-unquote New Testament, an idea that we're going to see born this evening, um, the New Testament is a late second century anthology that isn't absolutely canonical until Constantine, after Constantine's decision in 312 to be a patron. But when it's, I, as I look at these traditions about Jesus now in the Gospels, it amazes me that the paradigm I was brought up in before coming to graduate school was, uh, has flourished for almost 20 centuries. Jesus, as he's presented in the narratives of the New Testament, is thoroughly embedded, as I argued last night, in a sacrificial culture. In Mark 1, 40 through 44, when he cures the leper, he tells him to go and do what Moses commanded, which, if you follow the footnotes in your annotated Bibles, is a remarkable amount of blood sacrifices and, and purification ceremonies. Um, he goes to um, the synagogue, which, again, doesn't necessarily mean a building. Probably in rural Galilee it didn't. He's there on Shabbat. He preaches repentance and care for the poor. There are arguments related in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus gives his followers instructions about where they should stand in the synagogue when they pray, about what they should look like when, they're fa when they fast, and on the correct size of their tefillin, these, um, these boxes of prayers that Jewish men bound and do still bind on their foreheads and um, on their arms. Uh, the tefillin shouldn't be as big as the Pharisees' tefillin, uh, Jesus says. Also, finally, Jesus is presented as going up to Jerusalem for Passover, going into the city with a great rush of pilgrims, which meant um, he went sometime up to and including the 7th of Nisan, because in order to eat uh, the Passover meal in purity, one had to go through the ritual of the red heifer ashes, don't ask, but it took seven days. And uh, it would be completed on the 14th of Nisan, which would be the beginning of the holiday. So all of these things are embedded in the story about Jesus. The metaphorical language of sacrifice through which Jesus is presented as giving his Eucharistic uh, traditions is, again, an index of how native Jesus is in his Jewish late Second Temple sacrificial cult. All of this has been read as evidence of Jesus' natural anti-Judaism by centuries and centuries of different sorts of Christian theologians. The paradigm shift that John Gager mentioned in his remarks last night is working against the paradigm that began to be established in the second century, which is, again, what we'll be looking at in tonight's handout. And as we look at that, we'll begin to see how the idea of sin is reconfigured as well because Christianity becomes this pan-Mediterranean religion of redemption. The role of Jesus is as a redeemer, and the question is, redeemed from what? If you have this level of redemption where the God of the universe is involved in the project, there must be something huge that he's fighting against. And again, we'll see this um, configured in terms of the Hellenistic um, synagogue. Paul's letters become part of this process, despite the fact that Paul himself, as I uh, argued last night, is also thoroughly embedded in his native 
uh, sacrificial context. He speaks uh, in Galatians 4 of the stoicheia, the elements of the universe. He speaks of Christ when Christ comes back in 1 Corinthians 15, besting the authorities, the principalities, and the powers, and then defeating them and then handing the kingdom over to God the Father. Um, Paul mentions again in 1 Corinthians that the rulers of this age have crucified the Lord of glory. Again, the word for rulers could very reasonably be astral powers because this is how these different layers of cosmic um, energies and planets were spoken of in antiquity. And he talks about, Paul talks about how the power of sin and death has undermined the flesh and, in a sense, compromised the law. What is Paul talking about there? What happens in this period of the second century is that there's an increasing evidence of volume, and I mean that both in the auditory sense and in the quantitative sense, an increasing volume of intra intra-Christian diversity and therefore, again, that's one of the most Jewish things about the uh, tradition, um, an increasing volume of intra-Christian argument. And one of the reasons this happens is because the principles of Paideia, particularly this rhetorical education that trained men how to argue in part by ridiculing a position of an opponent, whether that opponent is imagined or otherwise. The principles of Paideia, not only the, um, the ways of arguing for one's own interpretation, but the different techniques of interpreting a text were brought to bear on these Jewish Greek texts, including various circulating collections of Paul's letters and various gospels. In other words, to have you look again at circa minus 300 on our timeline, what I'm arguing is that Christian theology itself is a late child of the success of Alexander the Great. What we find in the later letters that are eventually collected into what will become the canonical New Testament collection is a very odd claim. After 16 centuries of Christian art and nearly one century of almost innumerable um, movies starring Jesus, it's, we think of Jesus habitually as an embodied human male. This is exactly the issue that is questioned that we hear about. It's the earliest fight we can catch echoes of in these later New Testament texts. The letter, first letter of John, chapter 4, verse 2, warns about false prophets. He's speaking about Christians. False prophets who deny that Jesus has come in the flesh. He says, Jesus came by water and blood, not by water alone. This is obviously a reference in part to traditions of immersion and Eucharistic um, traditions. And 2 John 7 warns against these Christian prophets who are deceivers and the Antichrist. 
These Christians are holding forth the idea that Christ did not actually have flesh, which is what bodies in the sublunar realm, if you're an animal or a human, this is what bodies are made out of. This seems counterintuitive, but if you begin to think of the Ptolemaic universe again, it makes, it makes good sense. In terms of definitions of perfection, the cosmic architecture was a statement of the idea of the high God, and what I'm talking about now is what historians will refer to as pagan monotheism. But I think, in fact, it's ancient monotheism, which is that the highest God is radically perfect, absolutely perfect. He is outside of the material universe. He is without body, because body implies limit. This God takes up no space, which is one of the reasons why the closest analog to the type of existence this God has is your thinking process. Your thought takes no extension. You can think of a green apple, but nothing pops out in your skull. Thought itself is radically immaterial. And God is perfect in that way, without extension. An aspect of this perfection, which is metaphysical rather than moral, an aspect of this perfection is that he is changeless. He or it is changeless, because change implies imperfection. You either go from perfect to less good, or from less good to perfect, and either, either thing compromises, um, compromises the definition. The high God is the only self-existing thing. I don't, literally words fail me because this, this entity transcends um, any category you can think of. He is self-existing, and everything else that is, is because of him. But he cannot be a creator, because if he were a creator, he would be doing something, and doing compromises perfection. So though there is a way in which the cosmos is imagined as a type of material reflection of, of God, the high God. And this entity is referred to as simply the God or the divine, or the one, or sometimes the father. The material universe reflects the perfections of this being without actually being his creation. So if you have the extremes of material reality and this being, how do you get from one to the other? The, the idea is that, of course, you have mediators. The stars themselves are one of the cosmic mediators in the system that, in a sense, declare the perfections of the high God. The reason why the cosmos is obviously imperfect, especially in our neighborhood, in the realm below the moon, is because of the problems with matter. What's the matter with matter? The matter with matter is that in terms of the imagined structure of reality, matter sound resides at the outer extremes of the effects of the good. Matter is a kind of crust that forms when um, at the edge of 
divine perfection. It ends up being the, the stuff, and Earth is the heaviest matter, and that's why it's sunk to the center of the universe. It isn't that matter is evil. It's that matter is the opposite, in a sense, of God. And it's a substratum of everything that is available to our senses. This is why this world is called the sensible realm. That doesn't mean it makes sense. That means that you perceive it with your senses. And the world of non-embodied divine entities is called the intelligible realm because the way you perceive those is with the eye of your mind. Matter, in other words, is, a, is a, an imperfect medium that's the expression of the divine idea of organization. This is a very intelligent form of theodicy. Theodicy is the idea of how you protect God's justice in the face of the problem of evil. How can you have such a radically imperfect cosmos and have its source be an all-good, all-powerful, um, radically perfect, metaphysical, extreme point? What you get in antiquity is different explanations of mediation. Angels do a lot of the heavy lifting in these stories. The demiurge uh, or the logos will uh, do a lot of the intermediation. That will be the di lower divinities do the heavy lifting while this supremely um, unmoving God is, just sits in the wherever it is that he's sitting as the source of everything else. The distance from God, literally the distance from God, in a sense is one of the explanations then for why things work so imperfectly here if a perfect God is its source. This is a philosophical definition of God, which is what makes it a theological definition of God. Theology is an effort to have a rational and coordinated way of thinking about the divine. And in this sense, theology, which is a subset of ancient philosophy, right? theology is born in philosophical academies. It has nothing to do with ancient altars and ancient piety. This concept, these intellectually luminous commitments of philosophical paideia run smack into some of the most fun reading that we have from the ancient world, ancient narrative characters. Narratives about gods present them as personages. They are narrative characters. They do things, depending on what myth you're reading, they do things that nobody would want their child to date. Zeus, for example. They do things that, um, that one wouldn't tolerate in, uh, in bad neighbors. Narrative characters evince emotions. They do things that are insulting to the concept of divinity as it's conceived intellectually. And this is something that ancient intellectuals coped with through their techniques of textual interpretation. If you look uh, in the middle part under how to read God's book, Celestius, again, he's a, a near contemporary of um, Augustine's, the generation before, God's book, in a sense, for Celestius, is the cosmos. The cosmos is a text. And if your mind is philosophically trained, if you have good character, 
if you're willing to put in the intellectual sweat to figure out what must be going on when you regard the cosmos as um, some kind of offspring of the highest deity, you can read through the physical cosmos to see the divine rationality and stability that the cosmos is a kind of expression of. So the cosmos expresses in physical language, in a sense, what, um, as, as best it can, the different perfections of God. If you remember the chapter in um, the verses from Romans 1 I read, Paul is operating with this idea when he's castigating pagan culture that looking at the universe, they should have figured out who God really is. Um, in Paul's mind, it's obvious it's the God of Israel. But again, it's this idea of the cosmos itself speaking about the goodness of the creator. Um, and, and then Celestius talks about having established that the cosmos is a statement of God in a kind of text. He then has to talk about traditional narratives, which any educated person was trained on when they got um, their educations. And he talks about the more offensive the story is, the more holy the secrets it conveys to those who know how to read. This is why he says, is it not perhaps a thing worthy of admiration, done so, all these unsavory rapes and battles and so on, done so that by means of the visible absurdity of the story, the soul may immediately feel that the words are veils and believe the truth behind the mystery. The insult to the philosophical concept of God is that's conveyed by the narrative actions of these divine characters in these traditional stories is exactly what cues the religiously sensitive and well-educated reader to know that this is exactly where to dig most deeply to figure out not what the text says, it's obvious what the text says, but what the text truly means. Philo, the next quotation, this partly is a testament to the stability of this, this educational culture. Philo in the um, first century commenting upon Genesis 2 and 3, which I'm sure several of you remember. Fruit trees, talking reptiles, uh, a puzzled new couple, uh, a god who gets very, very angry, and, and other odd things too. A god who makes the sound of footfalls in a garden. I mean, what... God doesn't have body. How do you look at this story? And Philo says, now these are no mythical fictions, such as the poets and the sophists delight in, but rather they are modes of making ideas visible, bidding us to resort to allegorical interpretation. Allegorical interpretation being the scientific application of principles of reading so that you can have a text mean what you know it must mean, despite what it says. And Philo is not quite being fair there, of course, but why should he be? He's also trained in rhetoric. Um, he's doing exactly what um, these pagan contemporaries of his are doing with their texts. The final quotation, Origin of Alexandria, uh, of whom I'll be speaking more tomorrow night, talks about texts as a code for the individual human being. So that a simple man should be edified by what we call the flesh of scripture, the surface stuff, 
when you're three and you learn about the story of Noah and the flood, you, and you play with the little animals and you have an ark and so on, and that's what you're told, that's the flesh of the story that you learn when you're a child and that you stay with if you're uh, religiously simple-minded. While the man who has made some progress may be edified by its soul, which is usually a kind of uh, moral sort of instruction that uh, goes along with, you can find if you know how to decode the story appropriately. And whereas the man who is mature or perfect, the word can mean either thing, may be edified by the spiritual law, because just as man consists of body, soul, and spirit, so in the same way does the text of scripture. There is this cosmic code of harmonies and what might otherwise seem um, an unnerving type of manyness and imperfection. Humans and texts and the cosmos, if you line them all up together, give you a way to understand how God figures in all of this. And this is something that's universal in Hellenistic Jewish thinkers, eventually in Christian thinkers, and certainly was native to begin with and was invented um, centuries before Christianity was a twinkle in anybody's eye um, by pagan Stoics. So the claim that, that we hear echoes of in these late first century texts, which is um, the item right after the destruction of the temple on your timeline, that Christ did not really have a body. He did not actually have a body. It's called docetism. The word means appearance. He only appeared to have flesh, but he didn't actually have flesh. It only He took on the appearance of flesh as a kind of learning device, and the people making this argument could point right to Paul's letters, uh, where pa uh, Paul says that Christ appeared in the likeness of flesh. Docetism is misdescribed in virtually every textbook I know of ancient Christianity as the claim that Christ wasn't really human. That is not what docetism is. Docetism is the claim that flesh is not really human. Flesh is not part of the person. Christ did not have flesh. He appeared as if he did so that humans who are living in the sublunar realm can see him and their redemption from the sublunar realm through the knowledge of salvation given them by Christ means that they too shed their flesh, which is this imperfect, temporary housing of their mind and their soul so that they, the true they, their soul, can slip back up the rims of the material universe and eventually exit the universe. I think souls that begin to have body enter at, um, enter at Capricorn and leave through the Milky Way. It's, there's, there's a highway in heaven that maps out how souls actually do this in antiquity. But in any case, this means that our destiny too the, the register of salvation is to slip, away, slip out of the flesh also, and this is the way that Christ recapitulates um, our experience. Docetism is, at the same moment, a claim about the material cosmos. It's not the native home of people. And about humans. 
The flesh is not the native home of the soul or the mind. There's something wrong with this picture. The flesh, the problem with the flesh, is that it disposes the mind to distraction, and it can lead the person into sin, which is a kind of standing existential distraction from what is truly important and what can guide him to, um, to salvation. Part of the ways that this mode of thinking about the revelation in Christ occurs is because of the rhetoric that we find in Paul's letters. Paul is not the cause of this way of thinking, but as, as anybody knows who's ever written a book and then gotten a book review, you don't have to intend something to have somebody else see something in what you have written. Paul argues through binary opposites. Please notice that in those two columns in front of you, um, I have Greco-Roman and Christian uh, in scare quotes because those are false terms. These Christians are Greeks and Romans, right? And for that matter, uh, the Jews are also. So it's, I'm just doing it as a heuristic device to help you think about the ways these things work. Paul presented his case often by these rhetorically um, powerful types of binary oppositions. And they play off of um, the type of binary oppositions that construct this model of the Hellenistic universe. So you get spirit as opposed to matter or flesh. You have the soul and the body as antipodes, in a sense, of human experience. The intelligibleness at the one and the many, a classic kind of philosophical um, comparison, allegory, and narrative being uh, two of these same sorts of things. And specifically coming out of Paul's letters, um, gospel as opposed to law, grace as opposed to the works of the law, baptism as opposed to circumcision, spiritual as opposed to carnal, and then given the way that Paul was arguing, and in his letters which are all sent to Gentile communities, where he is arguing against other Jewish apostles within the same messianic movement that he is in, who are also going to pagan communities, preaching about the redemption in Christ. Those people, Paul said, are they Jews? So am I. That's, they, that is a lot of where the Jew-Gentile dichotomy comes from, but it is read and it's heard differently in the second century. This is all work that's happening between, please look again at your timeline, the um, items in bold. This is happening particularly in the period between 70 and 132, 135. In other words, this way of making sense of experience, this way of making sense of a text, and this way of making sense of the architecture of reality and of the universe is also plugged into empirical historical events. In 70, the temple was destroyed. In 132-135, after the Bar Kokhba revolt, Jerusalem disappeared, and the city was rebuilt as a pagan city, Elia Capitolina. A lot of these theological claims, then, which expressed themselves in terms of that incredible rhetorical clarity that is part of the, uh, the gift and the curse of this form of education. This is also the sort of radioactive heart of what will become the tradition contra judaios, 
where the Jews are used as rhetorical opponents that shape Christian identity. But part of the way they are um, appropriated for this tradition is pointing to these, these, why would the God of the universe allow his temple to be destroyed? He doesn't like the way the Jews are running the temple. Why does he allow Jerusalem to be destroyed? Jews are still keeping kosher, circumcised. All, they're doing a fleshly interpretation of the law instead of a spiritual ter- interpretation of the law. Or is something else going on? I'd like to introduce you very briefly to, um, to three theologians, possibly only one of whom you've heard of before, the first, Valentinus, who was native of Alexandria. Marcion, another incredibly important uh, Christian theologian whose church was so vigorous and whose mission was so extraordinarily successful that we do not have a single text he wrote. And finally, uh, Justin Martyr, whose uh, works are easily and readily available on the web in good English, which lets you know that Justin was retrospectively seen as the correct um, theologian in this, um, in this early second century competition. For a moment, all three of these men lived in Rome. They thought with the type of mental material that I've sketched for you so quickly this evening, and they share the same theology, which I um, give to you very quickly near the bottom of the page. All three of them, because they're men of of good education, all three of them hold that the high God cannot be involved with material creation. For one thing, it's radically imperfect. Obviously, and the high God doesn't move anyway, but he's not immediately tied into um, physical creation, which immediately entails their second theological point of principle, which is that a lower God organizes creation. A subset of this, all three theologians agreed, is that this lower God who organizes material reality is the God who is presented in Genesis. And since people knew that the Septuagint is a Jewish book, this meant that the God who appeared in Genesis as the creator or maker or organizer of the material universe is the God of the Jews. The third point that they share in common is there, because these are Christians, is that the high God is the father of Christ. Christ's father is this perfect, radically transcendent high God. They also, as a matter of pedagogical and textual commitment, argue that to understand the Christian message of redemption from sin, redemption from sin, one must be able to read the Septuagint and whatever collection of Christian writings they happen to have, because a lot of different Christian writings are circulating in this period. One must be able to read the text correctly, by which they mean vaguely the way that um, the three authors I quoted in the middle of the sheet say, with spiritual understanding, to know how to see through what the text merely says to what it must actually mean. Those are a lot of coordinates to have in common. 
And those coordinates are all granted to them from the same source, which are the principles of Paideia. So the question is, what is the relation of Christ to the God who is portrayed in Genesis? For different reasons and arguing textually in different ways, both Marcion and before him Valentinus will argue that the God of the Septuagint is the opponent of the Son of God. The God of the Septuagint is a lower God who organizes matter, which means that these two theologians are taking an extreme stance if we look at this just as a type of Greek philosophy. They are passing a judgment on the moral status of matter. The moral status of matter. Matter is inert, but it has a moral status. And they are saying that the moral status of matter is negative. Pagan Neoplatonists fought against that type of gravitational pull that's native to their construction of reality. Plotinus will uh, argue vehemently against it. Valentinus makes the claim. And as far as we can tell from what shreds of information we have of Marcion, um, Marcion thought similarly. Therefore, matter itself is created by a lower god who is not a good god, he is the God of the Jews, and then you can plug a particular reading of Paul's letters into this way of imagining things, and that's how you come up with an anti-Jewish Paul on the basis of how you read these letters and present Paul's actual message. Justin takes a different view, although he, again, shares all these points of principle with these other Gentile intellectuals, he is also reading the Septuagint. He's also thinking in the categories of Paideia. Justin says that the other God presented in the Septuagint is the Son. The God of Genesis is Christ before he had a fleshly body. Christ, in this way of reading the text, is the author, in a sense, of matter, which means that Whatever the matter with matter is, it cannot be intrinsically evil because Christ, as the agent and lieutenant of the high God, the son of the high God, would not make something evil. This also means that Christ is the actual identity of the God of the Jews. Most Jews just never realized it, and that proves that the Jews aren't capable of reading the text with any type of spiritual understanding. This God, who is the pre-incarnate Christ, says things like, circumcise your sons on the eighth day. And the Jews think that he's talking about body parts, when obviously he's talking about sexual ethics. Right? It means you know, have a sexually self-disciplined uh, demeanor. This God will say, uh, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, and the Jews will refuse to show up in courts of law on Saturday and take naps. So it's obviously they are referring to this text carnally, and the Jews are the ones who, now we look at the gospel stories, the Jews are the ones who killed Christ, proving that this is why the Jews never really understood the message of the prophets. There's poor Isaiah saying until he's blue in the face, I'm talking about the Christian God here. And the Jews never realize it. Isaiah says, holy, 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 when he has his vision in the temple, and the Jews don't realize Isaiah is seeing the Trinity. I mean, 
they just don't know how to read. And in this, in this case, this is how the Jews in history become a type of instantiation of a willfully sinful people. What is the definition of a sinful people? A definition of people who are so carnally minded, they literally, I mean, God, a.k.a. Christ before the incarnation, is knocking himself out, splitting the Red Sea, bringing these people uh, through the desert, giving them the Ten Commandments, and as the prophets themselves complain everywhere, uh, the Jews never get it. Until finally when Christ says, that's it, Dad, I'm going down. I'm going to be incarnate. And he shows up. What do they do? They crucify him. And God gives him, and Jesus gives them another uh, few decades to repent. And they still don't get it. So God says, this will be the wake-up call. Destroys the temple. Meanwhile, Jews in Alexandria are still not eating crab cakes and circumcising baby boys. They just, they never got the cosmic wake-up call. This is how, this, it's in this unbelievably creative and argumentative context that this extraordinarily long-lived tradition begins to take shape. The question is, what is the definition of sin given the parameters of reality I've just run all of us through? Sin is a separation from the high God. It is both mental and moral. According to Valentinus and to Marcion, who is the Christian theologian who came up with the idea of having a specifically Christian canon, forget the Jewish books, just have a Christian series of books. I know, we'll call it a New Testament. It was, a, it was an idea that would have a long future. Both Valentinus and Marcion said that the separation from the high God is the situation of everyone who is imprisoned in the material realm and those who have the wit or the spiritual constitution to understand how to read these revelatory texts and the text of the universe correctly knows that um, redemption means redemption from the flesh. You are redeemed from the flesh because you are going to slip through the material cosmos and go to a purely spiritual realm where Christ and the high God await. For those Christian communities represented by Justin's resolution, sin is the separation of all those who are caught in this age where rebel demons and fallen angels direct the course of events. But ultimately, Christ will return. There'll be a resurrection of the dead. Everybody gets their fleshly body back, everybody who is saved. And this is because Christ is the author of flesh, so that Flesh is an all right for people to get back. But you don't take flesh up below, above the realm, below the moon. Flesh is native to the center of the universe, not to its edges. So if you have these raised bodies who all are reunited again once Christ comes back, where do they go? The answer, obviously, says Justin in chapter 81 and 82 of his dialogue, Jerusalem, which is also going to be uh, new and improved uh, considerably when, um, when Christ returns, which I can just, excuse the mixed metaphor, I was reading a lot of undergraduate papers just before coming here. You can hear Valentinus rolling his eyes. Because, I mean, he, he would look at Justin and he'd say, too Jewish. 
right? Who thinks of Jerusalem as representing the, the pinnacle of salvation? Obviously, somebody who's carnally minded. This is how somebody like Justin Martyr is a Jew, depending on where you're standing in this intra-Christian polemical field. So it's the redemption of the flesh, not redemption from the flesh, for thinkers who are thinking with these ideas of sin the way that uh, Justin is. The paradigmatic Gentile sin in all of this um, constellation of argument is that Gentiles, meaning pagans, have been deceived by demons or they worship the lower gods and they don't realize what is actually going on. But the paradigmatic Jewish sin urges Justin Martyr in particular is idol worship and blood sacrifices. The golden calf in Exodus becomes a premier identifier of Jewish religious sensibility. Jews as a people are intrinsically drawn to idol worship and they mark this worship of idolatry by their addiction to blood sacrifices. And the only reason, but somebody might object in this catechism class and say, but Mr. Martyr, his last name wasn't Martyr, it's an accomplishment, but, but this God is giving all these instructions to, um, to the people of Israel, so of course you're fussing about one-year-old lambs and you know, other quadrupeds and so And the answer is that God gave those rules to Israel, the ones that cannot be usefully allegorized, gave those rules to Israel because everybody was an idol worshiper and this God, namely Christ before the incarnation, was trying to distract Jews from the type of idol worship that all the other nations were um, participating in so that the busyness with fleshly sacrifice itself, according to these Christians, not that many decades after the lifetimes of, of Jesus and of Paul, blood sacrifice itself is, in fact, an index of sinful religious imagination and a terrible activity. It's implicitly idolatrous itself, and so a trail of blood follows the Jewish people around, a trail of blood from their animal sacrifices, a trail of blood because according to later apocryphal stories that were originally Jewish themselves, Jews murdered their own prophets, and finally a trail of blood that is, uh, reaches in a murderous acme where Jews are the ones who kill Jesus, not the Romans, and then finally where there's a trail of blood continuing because behind the, the Gentile pagan persecution of Gentile Christians by the demons and the Jews. And with that is our setup. I'm going to talk tomorrow about how Origen in the 3rd century and Augustine in the 4th century took this entire argument and both made absolutely original, brilliantly consistent, diametrically opposed theological resolutions of this entire argument that goes on in the second century. Thank you for your attention. I'm happy to take questions. So we, um, again, uh, have some time for questions.
Here comes the mic. Yes, you referred last night and tonight to the golden calf as the paradigmatic uh, Jewish uh, problem. Uh, but I've always wondered, where did the golden calf come from? Is that Egyptian? What has it got to do with a mountain, if anything? What does and it have to do with what? The mountain. Aren't they at the mountain? I mean, it should be a mountain god that they are worshiping. I, I, just, I just wondered where the golden calf came from. Even God couldn't get a really good editor. Fred wasn't available at the time. Um, I don't know. I mean, in a sense, the, the calf came from the earrings of the wives and the, uh, the children of the people who were, were running around. Why a calf? I have no idea. But um, it doesn't matter how... Was there really a golden calf? Who knows? But the idea is that that image ends up being a, a defining moment for Christian exegetes and how they characterize. And when you look at the story, it's, I mean, the rabbis had a tremendous time talking about this in their midrashim uh, because, I mean, God has just done all the spectacular stuff. Moses disappears for a few days, and it's deja vu all over again. So, I don't know. Yeah, oh, I, can, I can talk loud enough. Um, what's the... Uh What's the uh, uh, role of sacrifice uh, to the uh, ancient Jewish community? Uh, was it a widespread thing um, in the rest of the Mediterranean cultures, and how did the Hellenists resolve it? Uh, you talked about blood sacrifices, and that's, a, that's just anomalous to us. Uh, uh, you mean uh, to, to, to us modern in people? The 21st century, um, and yet... Uh, uh, Paul used it uh, uh, in the case of Jesus, and, and you think, well, that's because the Christians lost round one, you know, and so you needed a sacrifice to explain his death. But, I mean, the whole, it gets, it gets included, it's a critical concept, and I'm still trying to figure out what its role is. What its role is? With regard to sin in the Jewish community, was it a widespread concept? Why did they? Why did it's they absolutely it? normative for Mediterranean piety in the period we're looking at. There's and in the handout the first night, I don't have one with me, but that's why I quoted both Celestius and Augustine, saying in the in the mid fourth century that that you absolutely have to have blood sacrifice if you're going to. Um, restore relationship with God. Both of them are saying that. Was it purification then? Is that the big deal? It's partly, uh, no. Well, blood is, in fact, one of the media that can purify, but it's, first of all, sacrifice is embedded in um, ancient Mediterranean cultures and in the text of the, New T of the Old Testament and even in the New Testament. It's, um, it's, it's just there. It's a normative part of culture. So that the idea of the way blood sacrifice works, not only for atonement, sacrifices can be brought for a lot of reasons. You can, it can be part of thanksgiving. It can be part of um, atonement. It can be, there are a lot of different types of sacrifices that are discussed biblically and then are amplified amazingly in later rabbinic tradition. But it's a normative part of, of worship, and it is so powerful and so central that the idea of sacrifice is what absolutely creates um, Christian liturgy and Christian culture. And the idea of atonement as 
um, Celestius' line, I just re uh, remembered it, is that prayer without sacrifice is just words. As a substitute for animal sacrifice, you have the economy of Europe run on the idea of paying for your sins with money. It's, it's called indulgences. Well, you can right? work it off. Well, you can work it off, but if you can write a check, that's so much the better. Um, but it's, I mean, this idea of having to actually take a hit in the pocketbook is something that is part of it. And in a, um, a sacrificing culture, it's, it's, just, it's, a, it's just such a normative way of showing respect. And also, it's a way of creating community, not only with the humans who are, are sharing in the, in the meal that's then available from the animal's body, but also creating community with the deity, who, to whom usually some parts of the animal's body are offered as well. I myself would not have liked it, but probably if I were a first century person, I wouldn't even have thought anything was very strange no, about it. It's hard to figure out what the rationale was. You know, I read it in African communities. Uh, a wrongdoer would have to work it off uh, in service to the community. In these communities, it just seems like you go through a ritual, including the shedding of blood to begin with, and then whatever else it, form it takes later on. But it's not just No, it's also, it's also restoring the community with God, and the sacrifice is, is something that's between the person and God. There, it's not that, oh, damn it, I just did that. Oops, I did it again. I know I'll go kill a perfect one-year-old lamb at the altar. It's not, you have to do other things as well, but the sacrifice is part of the protocol. Um, it, in the Gospels, it sounds like, or the authors of the Gospels believe that Jesus inevitably had to die. Uh, that was the plan. But you make it sound like these, the three theologians who, who you talked about uh, thought that the Jews had another chance to repent. Um, so did, did they think that Jesus had to die as well? Or is, is there... Any sort of inconsistency there? I, I'm a little bit confused in that. I'm not sure what your question's actually asking. Does, do they think that there was some kind of cosmic script that Christ had to fulfill by dying the way he did? I guess so, yes. Yeah. Yeah. The ideas of the trail of blood has been continuing into modern times and also the Jew is the uh, lascivious kind of uh, creature. I'm sorry, is, is the mic actually on? I'm having an awful lot of trouble hearing you. Yep, um, I'm sorry. The, the idea of a trail of blood and mm -hmm. also the portrayal of the Jew as a uh, cardinal, uh, carnal, lecherous creature uh, has continued on to modern times. You see that in the depiction of anti-Semitic literature as the Jew is the lecherous person uh, going after a Christian girl. You have the issue of the blood continuing with the uh, idea of the ritual sacrifice, uh, blood of a Christian child on the, uh, on the Passover uh, matzah uh, continues un until modern times. Yes. 
and is continuing still. I mean, there was a new version of the blood, the blood libel um, a few years ago published by a newspaper in Saudi Arabia where um, uh, matzah, I guess, had gotten too domesticated, and this time it was with hamantashen, the triangular cookies at Purim. I'm convinced it must have been the poppy seed hamantashen they had in mind, but they had this whole idea of what happened to um, Muslim children by Jews who used the blood of Muslim children to make hamantashen. It's a very powerful mythic idea. Um, given what you say about the prevalence of sacri sacrifice uh, throughout the Mediterranean, including among the Romans and all their temples, um, it seems surprising that in the letters of Paul, there seem to be relatively few references to sacrifices. And even throughout the whole New Testament, all of, there's many, many opportunities for Jesus and others to say, go and sacrifice. You've been saved or you've been, uh, your life has been redeemed. But that, that's exactly what Jesus said uh, but, but, with the leper. Go and do all that Moses commanded. Right, but that's one example. There's many other examples where it could have been said but wasn't. And so it's almost stark by its absence except for a few isolated examples like the one you quoted with the leper. Oh, no, but there's, again, that's why I mentioned the 7th of Nisan and the 14th of Nisan. I mean, there was only one place in town for Jesus to pick up the main course at his Passover meal, right? Yeah. One of the guys had to go to the temple. I don't envy him. It must have been a madhouse, but that's the only place to right, get it. Right, right. And the language of Paul's letters is shot through with temple language and sacrifice language. It has been... Um, disguised by the English translations we're so used to. I mean, Romans 9.4 is, is the language of blood cult and divine presence in the Jerusalem temple. But when you read it in English, it's about um, uh, they are my kinsmen and to them belong the glory. Well, that's nice. The gloria in Latin translates the doxa in Greek, which is about the kavod, the glory of God that's present at the altar. He talks about uh, the RSV has the word worship, which sounds like something in King's Chapel, right? And it's, you look back and it's, um, it's Lytreia in Greek, which is avodah in Hebrew. And that is specific, that's not worship like, you know, whip out a rosary. It's, it's blood sacrifice. And Paul himself describes his apostleship in terms of doing a priestly service bringing the offering of the Gentiles to Jerusalem. It is absolutely shot full of his own native religion. And um, look at people who read Greek perfectly would still look at that stuff and say that Paul is anti-temple because of the power of this paradigm that was born in the centuries we had a quick helicopter tour of tonight. Sacrifices and the epistle to the Hebrews is all about sacrifice and a temple in heaven. It's, it's a, the New Testament is a book that's filled with sacrifices because most of those letters and most of those stories are written by Jews, and that's part of their culture. Okay, thank you. But you're the last question. 
All right, I'll try and make it succinct then. Uh, you spoke earlier about the division between uh, early Christians who described flesh as positively connotated and negatively connotated. And it seems to me that blood sacrifice is the ultimate in the denial of the flesh in favor of the spiritual. How would early Christians who described flesh as positively connotated distance themselves? I'm sorry, themselves? You're, you're, you've thought about this so carefully that what you're saying to me is too dense for me to get inside of your question. Could you... I'm sorry, yes, I'm just, trying to... Just, no, I appreciate your intensity a lot. I just re- literally couldn't follow your question. All right, uh, you talked about the differences between positively and negatively connotated flesh. Right, how described these different, as two Christian different theologians look at flesh and some say it's, in, it's intrinsically negative, let's say negative, and some say it's okay, it's positive. Right, okay. and then presumably these uh, theologians who are saying that flesh is positively connotated are still trying to distance themselves from the uh, quote-unquote Jewish customs of blood sacrifice. Would but you... no Jew is sacrificing when these theologians are written, writing, although you'd never know it from looking at their descriptions of Jews and uh, from their other writings. No Jews are sacrificing in the period of the lifetimes of these Christians. They are getting the idea of Jews sacrificing by the way they're looking at the Septuagint. Okay, right. But um, my actual question was then how do these, uh, how does this viewpoint that the flesh could inherently um, be evil Mm-hmm. Uh, how does that balance out against the idea that blood sacrifice is horrific and wrong somehow in this early church setting? I mean, it would seem that if the flesh is evil, sacrificing blood flesh, the elimination of flesh in favor of the spiritual would be smiled upon instead of frowned upon. Oh, because you're doing something bad to the flesh? I see. Well, um, it's to an animal body. What, just, I don't mean to put this to you as guess what I'm thinking, but given that these men are living in Rome, in the second century, and they're in a regular Roman neighborhood in the second century, and they look around themselves, and there is a tremendous amount of blood sacrifice going on to the worship of those deities. Who are the ones who are doing that sacrificing? Pagans. And when they see the idea of Jewish sacrifice presented in the text they're trying to interpret, there is a kind of liaison that is created imaginatively and textually between the pagans who are sacrificing, and this is particularly true for Justin Martyr, who said that flesh is good, and the, the Jews who are sacrificing, and the only reason that Christ, whom the Jews didn't recognize as such, was giving them all that instruction on in how to do blood sacrifices was so that they wouldn't go and worship foreign gods, they would just worship himself, basically, and then the Jews went and built a, uh, a statue of a golden calf. So, I mean, the, the idea of the f- flesh that you actually struggle against, I mean, some of these people were um, vegetarians in principle. They would not eat meat. Um, some people, um, Marcion's church was radically celibate. If you think that flesh is intrinsically involved um, with wickedness, you don't have sexual relations. And so, I mean, there are all sorts of ways to cash it out. Blood sacrifice itself is a kind of coded symbol for intrinsically wrong worship, no matter who's doing it. But the only people who are doing it, when any of these people are writing, are their, are their Gentile neighbors. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your attention. And I hope I see you tomorrow night. <laughs> <laughs>